Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, that is God's rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day of a more complete rest through David. Uh, That last part was uh, mine, so if you didn't see it in your Bible, you know why. There there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered God's rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his own. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone uh, fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let's pray together. Well, thank you for this word. And Lord, we're so glad for what your word does in our lives and what you're making us into by your Holy Spirit through your word. We thank you that you've given us so sure a revelation of yourself and of your ways that we don't have to guess or collectively come up with our own ideas. You reveal yourself wonderfully in this book. And we pray that you would open up this passage to us and just speak to us about these things that are so important to you and so much on your heart that you have made it a part of your Bible. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for your commitment to us and unfailingly so. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. And thank you for just the blessing of being your workmanship, what you're making us into day by day and week by week. We thank you that we are not what we once were and nor are we today what you will yet make us into, Lord. It gives us hope and thanksgiving. We're so grateful that you are our God and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that these Hebrew Christians were being tempted to renounce and to abandon their following of uh, Jesus and to return to a works-based religious system because of the greatness of the suffering and the difficulty and trials that they were going through because of their faithfulness to God and because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And I think it's very important because the writer is very, very strong with these Christians and he's strong with uh, anyone that would contemplate as a Christian abandoning the Lord and going back to the old life. But we want to give credit where credit is due and to realize that these people were not thinking about Uh, going back to their old life and leaving Christ because, you know, they broke a fingernail or they'd had a tough day or something on the car broke or something like this. They were really facing some tremendous obstacles and difficulty in their life. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, he kind of gives us uh, little smatterings of revelation related to that throughout the book. And maybe the strongest of it all is in in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Let me read it to you in verse 32. And he writes to them, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you were saved. You endured a great struggle with sufferings, 
partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. We also want to remember what the writer has also spoken to uh, these Christians in chapter 3 because he's kind of building on that here in chapter 4. And we remember that he had told them that to renounce or to abandon Christ and the salvation found in him is simply not acceptable as a Christian. That is not on the option table for anyone to not only do, but not even to consider. And then he also asked them to consider the very severe consequences that the children of Israel went through in the Old Testament because of their disobedience to God in the, uh, at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And all of that's recorded in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, where God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, had brought them right to the border of the promised land, the land that he wanted to give to them uh, as a gift. And he wanted to give them the promised land because he wanted to give them a place of physical rest. And the Jewish people were a wandering people up to that point. The world was largely hostile to them and abusive toward them, taking advantage of them. And so God was going to bring them into this land of milk and honey as a place of physical rest for them. It would be their own land, and they would be their own people within that land. And so it was this this location of physical rest and this kind of very hostile world toward God's uh, people. And so God commanded that they would send out 12 spies throughout the promised land in order to verify the truthfulness of what God had spoken to the children of Israel, and that is that this land was a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, a very, very prosperous land. And so the 12 went into the land. They spent a significant period of time in the land, searching it out from the north to the south, the east to the west. And they came back on their journeys, and to a man, all 12 of them reported to the children of Israel, it's everything God said it was. It is an abundant land. It is flowing with milk and honey. Wow, this is amazing what God is giving to us. And then 10 of the 12, though, spoke up in unbelief of the power of God and in disobedience to God's command to go and to take the land. They said, but what good is, I'm paraphrasing, what good is a land that's flowing with milk and honey if we go into the land and we're killed by the people that possess it? We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. They've got the descendants of Anakim. Their giants will get slaughtered. And Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, they stepped in. They recognized immediately what was happening. This leaven was going, uh, moving quickly. Nothing moves faster than fear through people's lives, even among God's people. We have to be very careful about it. So they stepped in and said, listen, don't listen to this report. God is bigger than any enemy that we're going to face in there. He's commanded us to do it. We will be able to do it. Let's go in and take the land. And the children of Israel believed the report, the evil report of the ten, and they uh, uh, did two things, both of them bad, but one worse than the other. The first thing they did is they said, we will not go in and possess the promised land. That was bad enough. But then they further declared, we are going back to Egypt, back into the old life that we had. At least it was a sure thing. It wasn't the greatest, but we're going to go back into Egypt, which is a picture of the world. And so it's a picture of a Christian when things get hard and a Christian looks and says, all right, I don't want any more of this. I'm going back into the world or back into my old life. And so this is what they were, uh, you know, 
were claiming that they were going to do and, and professing that they would do. And the end result of all of it was that it angered the Lord and then he vowed not to let that generation enter into the promised land. And so that generation wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness until all of them had died and only Joshua and Caleb survived that generation to then enter into the promised land 40 years later. And the point that the writer is making to these Jewish Christians in all of this is this, that if, the, there, if those were the consequences of the failure of God's people to enter into a physical rest that God was providing uh, for His people, how much worse would be the consequences of failing to enter into the spiritual rest that God was providing by abandoning the Son of God, abandoning the salvation that's found in Him alone, and then returning to Egypt or returning to the world. Now, the writer uh, in chapter 4 here, the writer informs them that they best not abandon Jesus because uh, it is through Jesus alone that mankind has been provided with a salvation that we can rest in. The whole theme of chapter 4 is the word rest. And the first 11 verses of the chapter, which we've just got done reading, the word rest is repeated nine times in, in, in the book. Now, the book of Hebrews is a very, very deep book. It is a very um, a detailed book, and it is a very uh, technical book in a lot of respects. And we don't uh, complain about that because it's God's Word and it's wonderful as it relates to all of that. But um, when we began this series in the book of Hebrews, I wanted it to be want it to be a thing where we are looking at the one great theme of the book, and that is that Jesus is better, better than anything and anyone. You're not going to do better than walking with Jesus in this world. And then also to look at what are the kind of great, um, you know, gleanings or the great major points of, of the book of, of, of Hebrews. And so in that vein, I want us to spend our time this morning look at, looking at four points from chapter 4. Number one, to realize that God desires us to be at rest in our salvation and in our relationship with Him. And number two, the only way that that can happen is for God to provide us with a finished salvation. And then number three, that to be at rest concerning our salvation is not to be carnal or lazy, but it's actually to be like God. It's a God-honoring position to be in. And then number four, uh, how to enter into that rest personally. And so, number one, how God desires us to be at rest in our relationship with Him in verse 1. He does not want a single one of us as Christians to be anxious about our salvation or to be worried about our salvation or to be uncertain about our salvation, where we stand with God concerning our salvation. We face a lot of pressures in life, and God knows that. He's going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. We have a high priest that knows what life on planet Earth is like. So we deal with a lot of things that everybody else in the world deals with, but we deal with things that people that don't know the Lord uh, don't deal with at all. We certainly deal with a spiritual warfare that they know nothing about. Um, uh, rejection, persecution related to a faith uh, in Christ, these kinds of things, though sometimes it does backfire <laughs> and then everybody goes to Chick-fil-A uh, for lunch <laughs> around the block. And I'm not just talking on one particular group of people, but there's a persecution against Christians on a lot of different levels for simply being faithful and obedient to God. So we face a lot of seeming uh, uncertainties in life, and God does not want us at our core to be uncertain about the surety uh, of our salvation and wondering every day, am I saved today? Am I not saved today? Am I saved today? Am I not saved today? He doesn't want us to live that kind of way. He wants us to enjoy our salvation and enjoy our relationship with Him. 
Now, these Hebrew believers were being tempted to return to a works-based human effort. I can do enough good things to earn my way uh, into heaven kind of a religious system. And one of the problems with a works-based salvation, a salvation that's based on human effort, on top of the fact the, the most glaring problem of, all, of, of it all, and that is that it doesn't exist. <laughs> there is no works-based salvation. You can, be, you can do a lot of religious activity, but no human being will ever earn salvation through that. So that's the biggest problem with it. But to return to or to engage in a human effort thing where I do these things, read so many chapters, pray so many of this, do so many of this on my knees this distance, and then I do this over here and old ladies across the street and all these kind of things that I try to put together and say, if I do enough of this, God's going to get me into heaven. The problem with, with all of that is you're never sure if you've done enough to please God. You're never sure on your deathbed as you're just slipping from this life to the next life whether you missed it by one Hail Mary or you missed it, and that's not a cheap shot. You missed it by one good work or you missed it by walking just two more old ladies across the street and you would have been in. You don't know what the cutoff is on a works-based salvation. And because of it, you can never rest in it. And, and so, because you don't know what the cutoff line is. And so when people get into a works-based kind of religious system, I'm going to work my way to heaven, you typically have a couple different kinds of people in that system. You have one kind of person who thrives in it. They are just born self-righteous kind of people. They're born Pharisees. They thrive in a religious environment like that. And, and, uh, and they'll hold up kind of over the long haul in, in all of this just because of their personality and their makeup and what they get out of that. It's carnal, but, that, but they do. The second kind of person is the kind of person who will give it their absolute all. All right, I'm in this religious system or I believe this thing over here. This is how you earn God's acceptance and salvation. And they begin to do that. And they will do these things with a ferocity that will outstrip their physical or mental or emotional strength. And they will, somewhere along the line, almost suffer a nervous breakdown in order to try and please God in that way. They, if this is the way and works is the way, I will die doing it. And some of them do. I said there were two, but there's three. A third group is another group that looks at it, and they begin to get involved in it, but they see, if I keep it up at this pace, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown like this, a religious nervous breakdown like this person over here. And religious nervous breakdowns are real, by the way. But God uses them to bring us to Christ. So I'm going to, I'm going to crash and burn like this person over here. So they see the handwriting on the wall and they finally just throw their hands up and they say, that's as good as I can do it. If that gets me into heaven, fine. If it doesn't get me into heaven, then what can, can I do about it? And all of those ways are just a very, very terrible way to live. And it all comes out of the same thing, out of the uncertainty in terms of knowing how much good I have to do or be in order to please God, in order to be saved and end up in heaven. And then there's the additional problem, and that is, what do you do when you fail? What do you do when you sin? How far back does that set you? How many more works do I have to do to get back to where I was? And it's a problem because we sin every day as Christians, even as Christians, Everybody sins every single day. So how can you make progress if we're failing on a consistent basis? So the whole, that's why any law, any system like that is just destined to condemn. It will, a person will never have time for a personal relationship with God because everything will be consumed by the law by the machine that, you, that we've got created here, and now we have to keep it uh, uh, going. 
And so there is this, that uncertainty of all of it. Then if we fail, how far does it set us back? Um, do we go directly to jail? Do not pass go. Do not collect the $200. What happens to us then? And so it's all, all a mess. There cannot be rest in a works-based human effort salvation because my salvation then is only as secure as my own faithfulness. And none of us are faithful enough to do that, not even on a daily basis. None of us are faithful enough to do that. And, and because we aren't, there is no final sense of security concerning salvation in that kind of a system, and there certainly isn't time for a relationship with God. And thus, and brings me to my second point, because God wants us to be at rest in our relationship with Him and concerning our salvation, He has provided us with a finished salvation through His the death of His Son, Jesus, upon the cross. When Jesus hung upon that cross... He said seven great things on the cross before he gave up his spirit and commended his spirit to the Father. And the final thing that he said before that event of commending his spirit to God the Father is he cried out on the cross, it is finished. And, and interestingly, the Holy Spirit records in the gospel that he, when he cried that out, he didn't... Uh, it, 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 mumble it. He didn't um, just barely get it out. It says, even at the end of those six hours, all of his strength gone, what he had been through, it says that he cried out with a loud voice. In other words, whatever he was doing there, there was a great sense of accomplishment in his heart over what his death upon the cross had secured for mankind. And he celebrates it with that great cry, it is finished. And that, those three English words, it is finished, it's a single Greek word, and it's tetelestai, and it means to bring to a close, to accomplish, to complete, to finish perfectly, uh, also to pay in full. And so he is crying out on the cross, paid in full, completed, perfectly finished, completely and perfectly finished. That's his cry upon the cross. Because by his death on that cross at Calvary, Jesus paid the full price that was required in order to provide us with a finished salvation. Not a begun salvation, but a finished salvation salvation. On the night before his crucifixion, he prayed to the Father in John chapter 17, and these are the words that he spoke to the Father. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus declared that he came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Elsewhere, when he spoke of in the introduction of the Lord's Supper, he said, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sin. Jesus died on that cross to provide us with salvation. And so Jesus has provided us with a finished salvation. He offers us a finished salvation. And why make such a big point out of this? Why, why is it so important? Because a finished salvation is a salvation that does not need anything to be added to it. If it required some work of mine, some effort of mine to be added to it, then it was not and is not a finished salvation. 
So when God says something is finished and he speaks of our salvation as being finished, it means it doesn't require anything on our part to be added to it. Why is that important? Because that's the only salvation you can rest in. The only salvation that sinners, people like you and I, who fall short of perfection every day, the only salvation that is a sure salvation for sinners is a finished salvation. And when something is truly finished, you can't improve upon it. And if you try to improve on it, you'll ruin it. You take a great painter creating one of the masterpieces, whether male or female, and they paint this fabulous painting. And there comes a point where they look at that through the gift that God has given them. They look at that painting and as they attempt, as they assess that painting, they realize that painting is finished. If I add one more stroke to it, it will not improve this painting. In fact, it will diminish the strength and the power of this painting. You only mar something that is finished by trying to add to it. And what is true of a painting is true of a song, and it's true of a poem, and it's true of a great book, and it's true of everything in life. You cannot add to perfection without marring it. And any attempt to add to the finished salvation of God that He's provided to us through His Son, not only does it not improve that salvation, but it mars that salvation. There's not one thing that God asks us to add to the salvation that He has provided through Jesus. He has purposely made salvation perfect, finished, and also made it a free gift, something that we freely receive from Him. And anybody can do that. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, that is a gift from God. Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. God did not leave one loose end related to His uh, salvation that we need to finish up. It's completed. Only a finished salvation is a rest-filled salvation or a joy-filled salvation. When something's finished, now you enjoy it. You spend the Saturday doing the yard, the backyard. It's finished. It's beautiful. Now what do you do? You sit down and you enjoy it. You remodel a room and you finally get that room finished. There's not another thing you can do to it that wouldn't mar it. It's so perfect. Now what do you do with it? You sit down and you enjoy it. You rest in the, fi- the fact that it is finished and God wants us to rest in His salvation and to enjoy it. And we're told so by no less of an authority than Jesus Himself when He declared, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's the word. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God is interested in us enjoying our salvation and enjoying our relationship with God and resting in that salvation and that relationship with God. But someone might be tempted to complain at this point. Well, if salvation is a free gift, I mean, it's as as free as you make it out to be, then what in the world is a Christian's motivation for obeying God? I mean, I know a little bit about Christians. If you just make salvation on the basis of a free gift and tell them that it's a finished salvation, you're not going to get those people to obey God's commandments on anything. 
You've got to hang those people over hell at least two services a week and make them at least a little concerned about the fact that they are going to heaven in order to get any semblance of obedience out of them through the rest of the week. Or you don't know Christians. So that's the perception. You've got to use a little guilt, a little condemnation. You've got to keep people a little uncertain about their salvation in order to get any kind of an obedient life out of Christians. Well, that's a great question. I think it's an important question. Since Christians aren't any longer under the law of Moses, are we then lawless? Are we free to live any life that we want and still be confident of going to heaven? And the Bible says no. The Bible teaches that as Christians... Once we left the law of Moses, the law of Moses was a tutor to bring us to faith in Christ. And once we became a Christian, the law said, here's your diploma, good knowing you. I can't take you any further. I've done my job. Now you move forward in your relationship with the Lord. But we do not cease to be under a law at that point. The Bible says we go then from the law of Moses to what the Bible calls the law of the Spirit. And when we become a a, a Christian, when we're born again, God's Holy Spirit comes into our lives and He brings a law with Him that He internalizes inside of us. Romans chapter 8 speaks of it. Let me read you a passage related to it so you know I'm not lying. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That is the law of Moses. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, He he writes His law on the deepest part of our lives, the fleshly tablets of our heart. Allow me to read one more passage to you. Do in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul wrote, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation, to you or letters of commendation from you, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You are manifestly an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And the law of the Spirit will produce a far holier human being, a far holier Christian than the law of Moses could have ever dreamed of or uh, ever intended to accomplish in a a human life or any, certainly than any man-made law. Because the Holy Spirit, when He comes into our lives... He doesn't just deal with our outward appearances, our outward presentation or actions. He also deals with our thinking. He deals with our feelings. He deals with our, our emotions. He deals with our motives. And He's working on all of those things to conform them into the image of Christ. Well, somebody might be sitting here today, and I'll just tell you ahead of time, it's a gift that I have, and you might be saying, I don't have the foggiest idea what this man is talking about. Well, let me illustrate it for you. Let's talk about movies, not individual movies, just movies, and Christians watching movies. You have movies that are R-rated. You have movies that are PG-13. You have movies that are PG. You have movies that are G. So what are we allowed to watch as Christians? Are we allowed to watch movies at all? 
Are we allowed to watch R-rated movies and PG-13 movies if there's no sexual content and no profanity, but there's a lot of violence in it? And then are we allowed to watch a movie with a lot of violence in it if the movie, if the violence is gratuitous or if it's violence that is necessary to depict the reality of the storyline, like a war movie. And you start to think about if you were to sit down and take 20 people, put them in a room, give them three days, and say, you come up with a law for all Christians about just movies. They will come out with a a stack, a law that will be this high. That's just movies. That's not talking about video games. That's not talking about the Internet. That's not talking about television. That's not talking about music or literature. Just talking about movies. They will come out with a law that will be this thick, and they will start to rival the federal government in terms of laws in order to keep people in order. Why do we have all the laws that we have? Because people are not ruled by the law of the Spirit. So here you have this thing where you say, all right, we're going to make a law in this particular area. Just one area would be unbelievable amount of paperwork that would take to encapsulate what it is that God thinks about that particular issue. And even after three days by 20 people, that law would have holes in it that are so big you could drive a Mack truck through it. Well, here's how the law of the Spirit works. You're at a video store and you're about to rent a movie. You look and they say, oh, that looks interesting. And you go to reach over there. And the Holy Spirit goes, ah, ah, ah. You're thinking about renting that? I don't want to watch that movie. And I live inside of you. And I don't want you to watch that movie either. And there's that conviction. There is the law of the Spirit. You don't have to put a law together like this. He lives right inside of us. He'll tell us what you can and you can't watch. He's very good at his job. And so he can speak in that kind of a situation. Or you're sitting and you're watching a television show. And he says to your heart, to your heart Hey, what you doing? He's watching a little television. Hey, what you watching? Ooh, you're watching that? I don't think we want to be watching that. I don't want to watch that, and I don't want you watching that. It's time to change the channel. It's the law of the Spirit, the Spirit inside of us now. We don't need 613 commandments. The law of the Spirit just telling us circumstance by circumstance how God feels about these things that we're engaging ourselves uh, in. Sometimes it can be... You're in the middle of a conversation with someone and it drifts off into uh, vulgarity or drifts off into slander or into gossip. And immediately the Holy Spirit inside of us says, I want you to break off this conversation or I want you to change the direction of this conversation because I can see that within 30 seconds you're going to come down to the level of this person and you're going to be slandering and gossiping too. And it's the law of the Spirit at work inside of us. You can walk into a store, and here you are, you're going to buy something. You have the money to buy it, and you're going to buy something, and you go to try and take it off of the shelf and consider buying it, and the Holy Spirit just speaks to your heart and says, I don't want you to buy that. You lose your peace. You take it, I'm going to buy it, and you realize there's a disturbance in the force. Between God and me, something is complicated in my relationship with God by virtue of me considering the purchase of this thing. And it is the Holy Spirit, the law of the Spirit, saying, this is not for you at this time, don't buy it. And if you buy it, you will, you know you will fight the Holy Spirit from that shelf all the way through the cash register, and you'll have to return it later. Because the Holy Spirit will be grieved. And so that's how the law of the Spirit works. 
He was driving down the road, and the Holy Spirit says, Hey, how you doing? I'm doing okay. What you doing? I'm just hating. I hate all these people on the road here. I hate Susie. She didn't invite me to the birthday party and invited everybody else in the class and the whole thing. I just, I just settled down in just a good hate session. All the bitterness and the poison and the unforgiveness and the whole thing. And then pretty soon the Holy Spirit speaking to us about bigger blunders we've made in our life than failing to invite someone to a birthday party or pulling out in front of us. And in fact, these blunders are not so far back in our Christian life. They just happened yesterday. <laughs> and about how somebody yesterday showed you and I grace that we didn't deserve, and now somebody's needing that same grace from us. And it's the law of the Spirit at work in our lives. And the law of the, whole, of the Spirit will produce a holiness and a godlikeness and a Christ-likeness that the law of Moses never dreamed of and was never intended to. The law of Moses was intended to deliver us into and hand us over, once we came to know Christ, hand us over to the law of the Holy Spirit. The law of the Spirit is there by the Holy Spirit in our lives, and, and He lives inside of us, and He speaks that law to us. And sometimes it's not even corrective. A lot of times it's corrective. With me, a lot of times it's corrective. I know you're different. But sometimes the law of the Spirit can work this way too. You walk away from a situation and you handle it pretty good. I mean, you re- I mean, that's just the way a Christian ought to have been in that situation. And I, and I said just the right thing and usually I don't. And, the, and I did just the right thing and you walk away from it. And when you walk away from a situation like that, you know God has used you. And the law of the Holy Spirit will speak and say, Hey. Good job there. That's just like your Savior. And everybody got a chance to see the kingdom of God in action right there in what you did. And so a lot of it is an affirming side of things as well. Now, and the Holy Spirit is able to address everything in life concerning Christ-likeness that goes way beyond even the 613 laws. You say... You can cover a lot of ground with 613 laws, and you really can. But there's a lot of little things in life, a lot of little aspects of the nature of Christ that aren't encapsulated in in those laws that the Holy Spirit produces within us. And so the Holy Spirit, this law of the Spirit, is the law that we operate under and the law of the Spirit is different than the law of Moses and it's different from any other law in that God, the Holy Spirit, not only speaks to us what's right in a situation, but then right at that moment He gives us the desire to obey and the power to obey. And that's something no other law gives. Not the law of Moses didn't and certainly no man-made law does that. I want you to notice number 3 in verses 4 and 10 that... uh, the Holy Spirit wants us to realize that it's not an unscriptural thing uh, to rest in our salvation, in this finished salvation. The writer tells us that God rested on the seventh day following the six days of creation. Why did God rest on the seventh day after six days of creation? He was finished. And when you're finished, you might as well rest. And so the salvation, the point he's making is the salvation is finished. You might as well rest and enjoy it. And so resting in our salvation, resting in the fact that it's a finished salvation, that's not a mark of laziness or, you know, carnality or carnal self-confidence. That's a, self, that's a confidence that God wants us to have. It's a mark of spirituality to be at rest in a finished salvation And it is simply to follow God's example. And that's good for us 
religious type A's to, to remember. We can't earn anything from God related to our salvation. We can't add to this salvation that we just have to learn to settle down, accept it, and relax and enjoy, and then obey God as a response to His goodness. And that motivation will never dry up because God will never be anything but good to us. And so that motivation will never run dry, the motivation of responding to His goodness. And I close with this. How can a person then enter into this rest personally? And he tells us there in verse 2, it's through faith in God's Word. What's God's Word concerning salvation? We could read dozens and dozens of verses. I'll go right to the mountaintop. What Jesus spoke in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that's you, that He gave. That's a gift word. His only begotten Son, that whosoever, that's you again, believes or trusts in Him, in Jesus, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is received as a gift from God is not of works. It's a free gift. One of the reasons God made it a free gift is so that we can rest in it. If it was not a free gift, we could not rest in this salvation because we would not be able to be sure of it. I like the story of an eccentric uh, evangelist. And the older I get, the more I like eccentric people. Uh, Sometimes I watch them from across the street. I don't want to get too close. But there was an eccentric evangelist named Alexander Wooten. Maybe he's eccentric because of his last name, Wooten. I'll get a letter. Okay, who's the Wooten in the room here that I've just offended? Nobody. But my mom's name was Wooten. Thanks a lot, Pastor. Anyway, I better close this up. So he was approached by a flippant young man who asked him, What must I do to be saved? And Wooten said to him, It's too late. And he went back to his work. At that point, the young man became very alarmed. He said, Do you mean that it's too late for me to be saved? He says, Is there nothing I can do? Wooten said, Too late. It's already been done. The only thing you can do is believe. That's the truth about it. It's a finished salvation. All we can do is just simply receive it. I close with this. Um, This whole scene of what the writer is dealing with these Jewish Christians, it reminds me of a scene in in John chapter 6 where Jesus is... almost at the pinnacle of his popularity during his three years of public ministry. People are following him by the multiplied thousands, in large part because he has this habit of feeding the audience when they're hungry, five loaves and two fish. So there's a lot of motivations, mixed motivations in the crowd. So in John chapter 6, Jesus stands up before this great crowd that numbers in the thousands, and he begins to speak to them very plainly about what will be required in order to follow him. And the strength of that passage is amazing. The demands were so great in the minds of the people that the crowd, they didn't even wait for him to finish. The crowd just began to melt away and cease to follow him. In the words of, of, uh, of the Apostle John, from that time many disciples went back and they walked with him no more. Jesus then turned to the disciples and he said, Boy, that was a bad sermon. I'll do better next time. That's not what he said. He didn't regret a single thing that he had said to that crowd. He turned to the twelve and he said to them, Will you leave me also? The single most amazing picture of vulnerability in human history. 
you have God Almighty asking human beings whether they are going to abandon him or not, and he gives them the freedom to choose. And God gives us the freedom to choose him or to reject him. And it's only the privilege of choice that then makes our choice to follow him something that is significant and meaningful both to him and to us. But it's amazing how vulnerable God has made himself in this area of salvation to you personally. Will you leave me also? And Peter declared and said to the Lord, Lord, we will not leave you. Where shall we go? For we, let me get it right. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of everlasting life. It tells me that Peter had assessed all of the other options to Christ in the world. And at the end of the assessment, he realized there's only one place that salvation is found. And it's in this one, in this Jesus. And because of that, I dare not go and we dare not go anywhere else. And that's the point that the writer is making, the same point that Jesus made to these Jewish believers. You're being tempted to leave me for this other thing, but this other thing will never supply you with rest. Stay where you are and don't move from a faith in me and walking with me no matter how difficult things might be. There's nothing better than Jesus in this world and there's no better life than the one that he has called us to. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, we want you to know that we counted a privilege to choose you. We can hardly believe and just pinch ourselves that you have given us an opportunity to choose you in contrast to all of this other stuff that only did us damage. Thank you, Lord for giving us the opportunity to choose you. And thank you, Lord, for a finished salvation that we can rest in, in a relationship with you that we can enjoy. You have thought of everything. Jesus really is a sinner's Savior. And, Lord, the salvation that you have provided us really is a sinner's salvation. And we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for how good you have been to us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you